0: John fourteen eighteen to 21, not orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live. You shall live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we pray that you will teach us from this passage how much you care for us, that we are not ever left to be orphans, that you care for us, we who are your people. Give us this assurance, this confidence, whatever our dilemmas and whatever, our anxieties, that you are there for us. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Christ has, in this chapter, been teaching that he's about to leave. He's about to leave imminently, shortly, in terms of his death and resurrection, but also he's been teaching that we should anticipate his return, his final return on the last day, the day of judgment. He's been teaching both, back and forth. And John the Apostle will use terminology that is an allusion to one or the other. In this passage, he is primarily speaking of Christ's (coughs) imminent departure. That is, he is about to be arrested and crucified. This is his final week. This discourse in John 14, 14, 15, and 16 is taking place in the final days before Christ is arrested. And when He does so, He's preparing them for His own disappearance. He will disappear. He will be gone. They will arrest Him, and then they will impale Him on a cross and kill Him that way, and then bury Him. So their hopes, their dreams, their assurances... Their comfort is about to be completely taken away from them. But meantime, before that actually happens, Christ is assuring them that though He's not there with them physically, He is with them spiritually. He will be with them for those three days until He rises from the dead spiritually. He will be with them spiritually after His resurrection and until they die And not only is he going to be with them, his own disciples, his own apostles, during his death and resurrection appearances and between his ascension and their own death in this world, but he will also be in the same way spiritually present with us and in us. Christ is present with us and in us between now and and the end of the world until we also meet Him face to face. Before, Between now and His return, or even before His return, if we were to die, He's going to be with us, we who belong to Him, until we meet Him face to face upon our death. Whichever the circumstance is, He's assuring us He will be with us. First, immediately to His own apostles, but also to you and me. He will always be with us. So, verse 18. He picks up on this assurance. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Though He is about to be gone from them for three days, and then appear to them over a period of 40 days, and then ascend into heaven, He's not leaving them as orphans. And in our case, we don't even see Him. We've never mingled with him in a physical way. We've never touched him. We have never eaten a meal with him. We've never done anything like that with him. It's the same with us. He will not leave us as orphans. We observe here, Christ is in relation to his disciples as a father to children. On the one hand, the Bible teaches God the Father in terms of His person, is known as the Father, Christ, the Son, and the Spirit as the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. In terms of their persons and identities, Father, Son, and Spirit. However, in terms of relationship, in terms of a spiritual connection, even Christ identifies Himself as a Father to us, His disciples such as right here. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Orphans do not have a father. They are left fatherless. For whatever reason, if the father is not there, then those children are without the father. Well, what does a father do? A good father, what does he do? He provides for his children. He takes care of them. He protects them. He teaches them. Correct? So a good father would do that to his children. Well, Christ, even though he's leaving, he's not leaving them in the sense of abandoning them. He's not going to die and permanently die. He's not going away permanently. He's not going to leave them as orphans in that way. He called his own disciples children in 1333 as he identified himself there. He implied that he is a father. 1333 of John Little children, I am with you a little while longer. And in Mark 10, 24, he says, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 2:13, he says, I and the children whom God has given me. In these places, he has identified himself as a father and his own disciples, we believers, are called his children. So Christ is also fatherly toward us. A father who protects, a father who provides, a father who pastors his own children. That's the way Christ is. He further says that he will not leave us. If he's not leaving us, If he leaves physically, then how is he with us spiritually? If he does not leave us, if he leaves us physically or we never see him physically, how is it that he's never leaving us? It has to be in the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, he never leaves us. Though physically, we don't see him. And in that way, It is the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. Which Spirit, he has mentioned in verses 16 and 17. He is, in verse 16, called another helper or another comforter. Christ is a comforter. He is also a comforter, another comforter. And we know he means the Holy Spirit from verse 17, the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth, He will send Him. And also in chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper or Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It is the Holy Spirit. He will not leave us as orphans because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. He is with us. And will be in us. The Holy Spirit always. Now, how can we say that because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that Christ has not left us as orphans? How can we say that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ? Keep your place here and let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16. 16, verse 7. 16, 7. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus. Galatians chapter 4 Galatians 4, verse 6, 4-6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. Who is the Holy Spirit here? The Spirit of His Son. That's why we call out to God, "Abba, Father." We are now adopted into the family of God, and therefore we have the spirit of the of his son dwelling in us. Philippians 1, Philippians 1 and verse 19. Philippians 1 19. 19 and 20. 19 and 20. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The Apostle Paul is not worried. He's not anxious about anything because he knows that there will be deliverance based on the prayers of the saints and based on the provision of whom? The Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And whether this results in his life or death, he's in a prison right now. Whether it results in his life or death, he knows he's not going to ever be put to shame and he will always remain faithful with boldness to preach Christ and to live for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 1:10 1, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets of the Old Testament, they were seeking to know, they made careful search and inquiry, and they had whom in them. They had the Spirit of Christ in them. Because they had the Spirit of Christ in them, they were preaching and anticipating the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ into the world. They were anticipating that. They were eagerly expecting it. Why? Because they had the Spirit of Christ in them as they preached Christ to the people, even though they never saw Christ. At least many of them never saw Christ. They still preach Christ. Even we, even we, verse 8, 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So then, it doesn't matter whether we can see Christ with our own physical eyes. It doesn't matter. Why? Because we believe in His Word and we have His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling in us. That's why we are never left as orphans. A loving Father would never leave His children as orphans. And Christ is, in that way, in a spiritual relation, a Father to us. In this way, even Christ taught his under-shepherds, his pastors, to be that same way. He taught the Apostle Paul, and Paul acted that way toward the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, 1 Corinthians 4.14-21, 4, to 414 I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness. The apostle cared for the Corinthians. He treated them as children, that is with gentleness, with care, providing and protecting for them in a spiritual way. John the apostle in the book of 1 John, he repeatedly calls his readers, his recipients, children, little children, even my little children. John the Apostle did the same. From the book of John, we, we are learning Christ did that. John the Apostle learned it well and called his own disciples children or little children. He also teaches us to be the same way. In 3 John verse 4, 3 John verse 4 I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. No greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Well, once his children walk in the truth and they evangelize and they make disciples, then whoever evangelized and made a disciple through that evangelism, he has become the father of that new disciple, that child. He has become the spiritual father of that spiritual child. And that continues as we make disciples, and teach them. It's the same. It should be that same way, so that pastors and Christians who are truly understanding this doctrine will have a true love of their people by treating them as beloved children. Now, verse 18 also says, I will come to you. I will come to you. In the immediate context, he is referring to his imminent death, resurrection, appearances. He's referring to those incidents. I will come to you. He said he was going to be with them um, a little while longer and then he would return to them. He, would, he has been teaching this doctrine. Now, John and Christ are purposely using this Language that makes an allusion to the second coming. Though in context, immediately he's talking about his death and resurrection and appearances. He is purposely making allusion to the second coming so that we might understand, so that the disciples might understand that just as he did it in that brief moment of history, he's going to also do the same with us at the end of history. He will come again, as he said in 14, 14 verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I will come again. There, he's talking about his second coming. Here in fourteen eighteen to 21, he's talking about his imminent death and resurrection. But with the language, with the terminology, with the verbiage of his return, so that we might see, just as it was in a microcosm with the disciples, it will be in a macrocosm with us. It will happen in the same way. He'll always be with us and come to us we can rely on His Word. Verse 19. After a little while, this is a confirmation of what He means. After a little while, the world will behold Me no more. But you will behold Me because I live, you shall live also. After a little while, the world will behold Me no more. After a while, they won't see Him. The world won't see Him. Well, what does that mean? Look at John 16, 16. John 16, 16. When He says, The world will not behold or see Him. After a little while. John 16, 16. A little while, and you will no longer behold Me. And again a little while, and you will see Me. 16.20 Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. What's he talking about? He's talking about how temporarily for three days, the world is going to rejoice that they got their way and they were able to put Christ to death. The world includes the Romans and the Jews. It includes all of those involved in putting him to death. They're going to rejoice that they got rid of this troublemaker. They got rid of this threat to them. They got rid of him. They will rejoice. The world will rejoice for a brief time, but the disciples will be sorrowful for a brief time. But after their brief time of sorrow... They will have joy, he says, but your sorrow John sixteen twenty, your sorrow will be turned to joy. And in what sense? twenty-one to twenty-two. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child she remembers the anguish no more, for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. And that brief period of sorrow to joy is meant to be an illustration to them from their own experience that this is what it should be permanently in them and permanently in us. Though we have troubles in the world, and those troubles bring grief, sorrow, and torment to us, We should not be caught up with it. We should understand that Christ is with us by His Holy Spirit dwelling in us and He will take care of us and we will one day see Him. We will one day see Him. Which means we are back to 14.19 where He says, Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. In what way? Because I live, you shall live also. Christ will rise from the dead. Because he will rise from the dead, we shall also rise from the dead. So that in this period between his resurrection and his return, in this period where we experience life in this world, eternal life, briefly in this world, on that day of resurrection, we will rise from the dead just as He rose from the dead. And the proof of that fact is that He rose from the dead. Because I live, you shall live also. That means that even though temporarily we see defeat, temporarily we see death, it's not eternal defeat, it's going to be eternal victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. First Corinthians 15:54. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Because we belong to him and because he cares for us. John 11. John 11:24. 11, John 11:24 to 27. John 11:24 Lazarus has died the brother of Martha now Martha has this dialogue with Christ Martha said to him i know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day Jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me shall live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this she said to him yes lord I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She believes this. She believes in the day of resurrection, the resurrection on the last day, when all of the saints shall rise to immortal life, a physical body that is immortal, glorified, with no more death and pain, sorrow forever and ever. She believes in that day. And how do we have assurance of that day? Verses 25 and 26. How can we know between now and then that we will experience the then? Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Christ is that resurrection. Do we believe in Him? She believes in Him, she says. Verse 27. Do we? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Shall live even if he dies. If we die physically now, we shall live physically if we believe in Christ. That's the first part. If we die physically now, we shall live physically with immortality, when Christ returns, on the last day. Verse 26 also. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever lives physically now and believes in Christ now shall never die the second death. Never die the spiritual death. Never be thrown into the lake of fire. Never be thrown into hell. Never will that happen. If we believe in Christ. Because I live, you shall live also. That day of resurrection will happen. It will take place. Christ said it, we should believe it. He said it, and we should believe it. Don't ever deny what he says. Don't ever doubt it. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 13 to 18 or 13 to 20. Hebrews 6 13 to 20. 6:13 To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God made promises. Abraham is an example of receiving this promise and living faithfully in accordance with the promise. We we see, though, right there in 17 and 18, that this applies to us. Seventeen. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs? We are, because we're children of God, not left as orphans. We are children of God. He teaches us the unchangeableness of His purpose. How do we know His purpose? By His word. And by His oath. We have His word. Express expressing his purpose, and we have his oath, which is an addition to his word. He not only says it, but he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. He swears by himself, because no one is greater than God. And by that, he swears an oath, so that we know, both by what he says, And by what he swore, that he really means it, so we should really believe it. If we really believe it, then we have a steadfast and sure anchor of the soul. It creates hope in us to endure uncertainties, to endure affliction, to endure worries and troubles. 2 Timothy 2. 11 2 Timothy 2:11 2, to 13 2 Timothy 2:11 2, It is a trustworthy statement If we died with him we shall also live with him If we endure we shall also reign with him If we deny him he also will deny us If we are faithless He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He introduces these words by saying it is a trustworthy statement. He asserts that it is trustworthy so that we believe it. And what should we believe? If we died with him, we shall also live with him. So don't worry if we die with him, because we will live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. What's the result of enduring persecution, enduring troubles? What's the result? We reign with Him. And that reign is forever. The kings of the earth, they reign 40, 50 years, right? But we will reign forever with Him. Also, a warning, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. It's one thing to have these promises. It's one thing to be taught that God is our Father. It's one thing to have the hope set before us laid out and explained. But if we walk away from it, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory with the, uh, with the holy angels. Mark eight thirty eight. We cannot deny him. However, when our faith is feeble at times, that's what he means in 13. When we have a feeble faith, if we are faithless, by faithless he does not mean completely without faith because he just explained in verse 12. If we deny him, that's having no faith whatsoever. Zero faith in verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That's zero faith. But feeble faith, little faith, is what he's describing in 13, which the apostle calls faithless. You lack the faith that you need. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself is just like Hebrews 6, where he made promises and he will definitely fulfill those promises. If he did not fulfill those promises, then God would deny himself. But God won't deny himself, Paul says here. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He keeps his promises to take care of us See us through. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 6. Philippians 1 6. God will perfect what good thing, what good work he started in us. What he started, he will finish. John 14, verse 20. Verse 20. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This close, intimate relationship is what we have with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He is the agent to accomplish this, which has already been mentioned in verses 16 and 17. This knowledge, this assurance, we will have that we belong to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That we are in them and they are in us. This close-knit, intimate relationship we will have with Him. This is why it is said in 2 Corinthians 13:14 May the grace of God, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Love, grace and fellowship of the Holy Spirit is what we have with our God. Because we have this true knowledge of him. He teaches us, he discloses himself, as he says in John 14, 21. He says, I will shall be love, he will be loved by my father, I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. God is in the process of disclosing himself to us because. He is in us, we are in Him. We are growing in our knowledge of Him, in our experience of Him, in our relationship to Him, because of this bond, this unbreakable bond that He has with us. This is the process, this is the progressive sanctification of the Christian life. This is what happens from the moment of conversion until our coffin or the coming of Christ. This is what happens, that we are being consecrated, we are being sanctified, and God in us discloses Himself to us. He reveals more to us. He teaches us more and more about who He is and the power He has to deliver us from our sins and to deliver us from temptations, to deliver us from persecutions. God is in this process of disclosing Himself to us. In First John, First John, chapter two, First John, chapter two, verse 20, it says, "But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You have an anointing from the Holy One. The anointing is the Holy Spirit of John 14, 16 and 17. And this comes from the Holy One. Well, who is the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel? It is Christ who is the Holy One. He sent the Comforter from the Father to us to grant us what? That we might... All know. Verse 20. You know. You all know. You all know. We have this true knowledge of God. This fundamental knowledge of God we know for the benefit of our souls. To save us and to sanctify us. 1 John 2. 1 John two, twenty five 25 to 27. 1 John 2:25 And this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you And as for you the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true And it's not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. We have an anointing which we received. This anointing abides in us. Therefore, there's no need for anyone to teach us. He's talking about this fundamental knowledge which we already have because whenever we heard the gospel... The Holy Spirit taught us to believe it. He granted faith and repentance. That's why we don't need a teacher. He doesn't mean we don't need a teacher throughout the Christian life. He doesn't mean that at all. Because He Himself, by writing this letter, is a teacher to them. He is a teacher to them. And He's teaching us to listen to others in the church, to the pastors of churches. But he says, since we have it, this anointing teaches us about all things. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us teaches us about all things, about all true things, what is true, and teaches us to make a distinction between what's true and what's false. Verse 26 mentioned what's false, because we have those who are trying to deceive us. He teaches us the difference between what's true and what's false. The Holy Spirit. What is, because the Holy Spirit is true and not a lie. And this anointing from the Spirit has already taught us and abides in us. And we abide in Him. We abide in the Father and in the Son because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in us. How do we know he means the Holy Spirit? 1 John 5. 1 John 5, verse 7. 1 John 5, verse 7. 7 to 12. 1 John 5, 7. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. There we have it. The Holy Spirit bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. He mentioned truth back in 1 John two twenty seven. The anointing is the truth, not a lie. The Holy Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The Holy Spirit is our teacher from the beginning of our conversion until the end of our life. He is the true teacher. Jude also teaches the same in Jude verse 5. Jude verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jude reminds his readers, though his readers know all things once for all. They've already been taught fundamentally about the truth of the gospel once for all. But they need to be reminded. This is the way in which the Father is in us and the Son in us, the Spirit in us, and they reveal themselves to us. God discloses Himself to us in that way to teach us and guide us along in our Christian life. 14.21, John 14.21. To whom does this apply? We have been emphasizing, as Christ has, that the Comforter is for us, and the fatherly love of God is for us. But now he reminds us in verse 21 to whom this applies. It does not apply to everyone on the globe. It does not apply to everyone who claims the faith. It does not apply to every person who claims to believe. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. These wonderful benefits of having God as our Father are for whom? Verse 21 reminds us it does not happen just like that and automatically to everybody. He who has my commandments and Keeps them. To have His commandments. Do we have access to His commandments? Do we hear His commandments? Are they in our head? Are they temporarily in our heart? And then when we walk away, do we forget? Are they with us to the extent that we keep them? To the extent that we obey them? Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 15, 15, 9 to 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. These commandments, if we keep them, then we show we love him. And if we love him, the Father will love us and the Son will love us. And make their abode their home with us in us. If we love Him, then there is love from the Father and the Son. This is the way in which He discloses Himself, He teaches us more and more, assures us more and more. If we love Him, He will love us. This is The fact that many say they love him but do not keep his commandments. So this verse, this promise or these promises, do not apply to everybody, only to those who are obedient, not to those who simply hear it, but those who obey it. James one James one nineteen. James 1, 19 to 27. One nineteen, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained. By the world. James says the same. It's no good just to have the commandments, to hear the commandments, to know them in the mind, or to have them temporarily on the heart. It's no good. We must must receive it in humility and put aside anger, quickness to speak, quickness to anger, the anger of man, Does not achieve the righteousness of God. Set aside filthiness. Whatever remains of wickedness. No one is perfect. So we are in the process of ridding ourselves of wickedness. We must obey. Not only here. If we but here, then we are deluding ourselves. Verse 22. So, obey, keep the commandments that we hear. James 2.14. James 2.14-26. 2, to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Can that faith, the kind of faith, oh yes, I believe, if a man says he has faith, does that kind of faith save him? Fifteen, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works... Faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body... Without the Spirit is dead. So also faith without works is dead. Works must follow faith. If works do not follow faith, then the faith is not a true faith. If one has the commandments of Christ and does not keep them, it shows he does not have True faith. Having said this, it is quite common for people who believe in free will, who believe in prevenient grace, which is a universal grace that comes to every human on the earth because Jesus died on the cross for every human, because God loves every human, therefore. Jesus died on the cross for every single man on the earth. That doctrine, they take from these passages that we have to take the first step toward God, then God will love us and disclose Himself to us. We take the first step, then God loves us. It sounds that way in the passages we've been reading. But it's not that way. The passages we've been reading are talking about the point from conversion or supposed conversion until our death or the return of Christ. The passages are talking about that period where the more we have faith and the more we love God, the more we obey Him, the more God is revealed to us. His assurances, His promises, His hope His comfort, the more they are revealed to us and experienced by us. It's talking about post-conversion. It's not talking about pre-conversion. Other scriptures talk about the condition of man, the state of man, the the depravity of man, the corruption of man before conversion and what God does to save us. If we can show, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Earlier in this same chapter, for the first three verses, he has already explained our deadness in trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1, for example. He's already said that. Having... Explain that we are dead in trespasses and sins. It takes God's grace to change that condition. That's where we pick it up in verse 8. Ephesians 2 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. What's not a result of works? This grace, this faith, this salvation? None of these benefits the gift of God. None of these are the result of works. If they were the result of works, then one should boast. One could boast. One would boast. And there are many boasters. They do do so. Believing in free will, they boast that they chose God when their neighbor did not choose God. They actually do say so. But that's excluded here. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3, 27 to 28. Here also, the Apostle has explained that we're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not because we accumulated works, not as a result of works. The Apostle in verses 8 and 9 explains before our conversion and up to our conversion. But verse 10 Verse 10 is the same as John 14, 21. Verse 10 is the same as James 2, 19 to 27. Verse 10 is the same as James 2, 14 to 26. In one verse, in one sentence, the apostle is preaching the same as James in James chapter 2. When he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, were, we are created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship for good works. The good works, James said in James 1 and James 2. The good works are necessary. They are a necessary component, a necessary result, a necessary effect of what God has done to save us in the first place. Good works. So, Ephesians 8 and 9, pre-conversion. Ephesians 2.10, post-conversion. Just like Jesus is exhorting, those who profess faith must, if we truly love Him, keep His commandments. Then we receive these eternal benefits and comforts from God. Shall we go to a couple more places? Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Pre-conversion, post-conversion on the same subject. Lest anybody think that we possess free will and God's universal love. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's confident that God who began a good work in us will perfect it. God began it, God will perfect it. Philippians 1.29. Philippians one twenty-nine. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Philippians 1.29-30 It is granted for the sake of Christ to believe in Him and to suffer. To believe, it says. So faith is not the result. Faith is not the fruit of free will. It is the fruit of the gift of God to believe or to have faith is the fruit of the gift of God. These passages, Philippians 1, six and one twenty nine, speak of pre-conversion and what they bring us upon conversion, right? Look at now Philippians 2.12. 2.12 and 13. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have obeyed not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Philippians are told, and all of us, work out your salvation with fear and and trembling. There's an important little word there, a little preposition. Out. Out. Work out. Not work for, but work out. Demonstrate your salvation. Demonstrate it. Reveal it. Disclose it. Show it to people. Work out your salvation not work for it. He's already said we can't work for it. Philippians 1.6 and 1.29. Now he's talking about how we live. Just like John 14.15, John 14.21, James 1 and 2, Ephesians 2.10. How we live. How? With fear and trembling. With the knowledge that God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It does require us to constantly repent, to constantly believe. But those abilities to believe and repent are coming by the grace of God in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. That means that when we hear the word believe, when we hear an exhortation to believe something from the Word, from God's Word, we should believe it. When we hear an exhortation from God's Word to repent of something... We should repent. It shouldn't take us days, months, seasons, years, decades to repent. When we hear, we ought to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is how, when we see our life in obedience to God, obedience to Him, conforming to His Word, the Holy Spirit Father, Son, and Spirit, assure us, comfort us, guide us, give us more wisdom, give us more strength, give us more power to do His will and have assurance of our salvation. This is how it works. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.